0: Perfect movie time. Perfect movie time. We are going to do maybe another episode where we talk about perfect movies, but we were just discussing The Princess Bride, and I want to lay forth the claim that Princess Bride is a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie. Yes. Now, this is interesting because Princess Bride has serious flaws, but is perfect. (laughs) What would you consider to be... The serious flaws of Princess Bride. The main one being that Princess Buttercup does nothing in the movie. She can't even hit a rat with a stick. Yeah. And it's named after her. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty serious, but flaw's the wrong term. This is a very interesting picture of filmmaking in the 1980s (laughs) and how people treated, for instance, a princess character. Yes. in the 1980s she
1: was a damsel in distress yes made even more hilarious by the fact that it was robin wright
0: yes. who's like an absolute badass yeah. she's amazing she's a really great actor she gets, gets almost nothing to do in that film mm-hmm. now this is a difference i i still think it's a perfect movie because i don't think the princess bride as a film could exist without that aspect to it right yes if you remove that from that film you no longer have the princess bride we don't have a perfect society. It does mm-hmm. let us look at society and be like, Princess Bride gave way to, I assume it was before this, to the, the Drew Barrymore film where she rescues herself. Ever after? Oh, yes. yeah. By, by a yeah. decade at least. Yeah. And probably not a decade, right? Because Princess Bride is late 80s and that's probably early 90s. Am I right? Princess Bride was fifth grade. Fifth grade. Oh. Which I want to say was like 87, 87. 86. Okay. Oh. We are getting a thumbs up from producer Adam. Eighty-seven for Princess Leia. Yeah, okay, but regardless, like this was in the air. People are starting to be like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Mm-hmm. We have a problem here." You know, Princess yeah. Leia is a badass and a damsel in distress <laughs> at the same time. You mm-hmm. can write stories to do that. Now, the part of the reason why I still think it's a perfect movie is this is also a film that is kind of, in a way, a parody. It's Parody is the wrong term. What would you call Princess Bride? A uh, pastiche. A pastiche. Yeah, it is that's a pastiche yeah. of epic fantasy. No, 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 not epic fantasy. Fairy tale fantasy. Fairy tale fantasy. Yes, yes.
1: much better description. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think is amazing about it is, while it's a pastiche of fairy tales, it isn't making fun of or leaning on the shoulders of a prior massive. Franchise fairy or tale yeah.
0: like community, That's you know, true. we all had fairy tales. But it's not like there were huge fairy tale movies coming before to lead to a scary movie type yeah, parody, exactly. Uh, pastiche is a great way to put it. And so, you've got Princess Bride,
1: which is doing a thousand and one really interesting narrative tricks mm-hmm. stuff that it didn't have to do. It didn't have to do the frame story with the son and the grandpa. Yep, it didn't have to switch protagonists halfway through yep but it's doing all these things that are very non-traditional and yet in a way that's so approachable nobody really looks at them and goes oh look how daring
0: this movie was right no i mean there are so many little things just like cinematography shots like the three of them standing there the the three Fezzik Mm -hmm. and Vecini Inigo, and Inigo just in a row as they're standing, is just beautiful. Just mm-hmm. a, an amazing shot. How they used Andre the Giant to really show his natural charisma. A lot of movies would not have taken the effort to show off that he's one of your most charismatic actors and mm-hmm. let him actually be in that role. Yeah. Well, uh. and he could not speak
1: English at the time. Mm. During filming, most of the lines of dialogue he has, he has memorized phonetically. Wow. Wow. And it wasn't until, you know, late filming
0: and afterwards that he really became kind of conversant in English. And I watched this movie recently, about a year ago, with my kids. They had never seen it. We showed it to them. And one of the things I noticed is that a lot of the sets are really cheap. (laughs) But this adds to the charm of the movie. It actually Mm -hmm. became... My wife and I sat and discussed it. It became charming to us. And what happened is the special effects, such that they are, aged really well because they were cheap practical effects Mm -hmm. rather than other types that might age poorly. Yeah. And because of that, you get the sense watching Princess Bride that you're watching a stage play. Yeah. You know James Sutter. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of his
1: Henson's Law? I haven't. Henson's Law, as coined by James Sutter, that computer graphics, no matter how good they are, they will eventually look terrible whereas cool puppets will always be cool puppets. Yep. And, you know, Princess Bride doesn't really have puppets, but it does have that same thing you're talking about, where it has this, you know, very kind of tactile workaday, we're here in the middle of it kind of feel.
0: Yeah, like the scene where Inigo and Wesley duel, right, with uh, swords, the sword fight, which Mm -hmm. is just a really great little narrative story. Yeah, There just happens to be a parallel bar there that a stunt actor can do a flip off of And it looks real obvious. And then when he lands, like the ground bends and you can see see the the foam pads, the foam pads, the mat or whatever he landed on. Like it's just right there. It's barely covered with any dirt. But again, it ages really well. It's like they tried enough and you look at it and you're like, this feels like a stage play. It feels charming. It feels wonderful. And so everything about that movie, I would call a perfect movie, but not beyond critique. Mm -hmm. despite being perfect. Yeah. Which is a weird way to look at it, but it is how I look at it. Well, maybe it's another way of saying
1: that it is a movie that did exactly what it set out to do, and it did it really well, but it is easy to look back at it and say, oh, well, here's a lot of other things you could have done.
0: Yeah. Had you been trying harder. Yeah, well, trying (laughs) harder is the wrong term. It is. Even, but yes, I think you get it. It did exactly what it was trying to do, and it did it really well. Mm -hmm. but every decision that a person makes is by its nature inviting criticism because there is an opportunity not taken. Mm -hmm. And I think you can discuss the opportunities not taken while still acknowledging that the film is perfect. And so our definition of perfect is a a wide, wide umbrella term (laughs) that may accept uh, many things that others may not call perfect. I would like to think that our definition of perfect movie
1: is not just movies we really love. Yeah. Because there are definitely movies I really love that I have to admit are not perfect. Yes. For example, Skyfall. Okay. Skyfall is, in my opinion, the very best Bond movie. Okay. And I will go to the mat for it.
0: I, I think it is incredible. I fight you on that. I mean, I might like Casino Royale better if we watch them back to back, but Skyfall is one of the strongest Bond movies ever made. Yeah at the same time, it has a lot of really glaring,
1: hellacious flaws in it. Mm. I would never claim that it's a perfect movie. You know, it falls into the hackers are magic thing, including one of the worst examples I've ever seen, which is the hacker who uses computers to crash a train through the wall of a hidden base. Like, (laughs) no, that's not how
0: computers work. It also includes the most very egregious omission in that the old caretaker of the manor that he returns to should have been played by Sean Connery. I know Sean Connery <laughs> is not willing to do things, wasn't willing to do things, but would that have just not been the most amazing thing if he came back and it was like, here is this old Bond who is now the caretaker? That and, would have been great, yeah. but it would have made the old
1: caretaker a previous Bond, which would have changed it fundamentally.
0: Yes, you change you, you tweak it a little I'm not sure bit. I would have liked that as much. Yeah, I don't know. But, that's that's my yeah. head canon, that that's Sean Connery playing the role even if he isn't a previous Bond, but yeah, I just ran across a signature page that I signed that is just completely thrashed. Oh, I don't know what happened to this set of signature pages, but I'm going and to pull some them lucky out. listener. Some lucky listener is <laughs> will not get it. Probably not going to get it. We're not going to. Oh do man, anything, all it? of these are, are they all ruined? Yeah, you'll want to. Are they misprinted? No, or... it looks like the box got smashed. Oh, in one of the corners, because it's it's right in the middle of the page, but the pages unfold from four. So I'm going to send these, Adam, to you to give to Kara to say, are these still worth signing or are they too smashed up? Because it's possible that's in the part that will get trimmed off when they make the book, but I'm not sure. We had a topic for today. Yes, believe it or not. (laughs) Before Brandon decided he wanted to spend a bunch of time talking about the Princess Bride, we did have a topic. Okay, and, so this yeah. this leads me to a title for our podcast. Oh,
1: good. Which is Preemptive Tangents. <laughs> we got onto two tangents before we even arrived at
0: announcing, let alone discussing our topic. <laughs> you know, you're not wrong. You are you are a wise man, Mr. Wells. Oh, thank you. Our topic is parallel storytelling. Parallel, parallel story evolution? Uh, there you go. Parallel story evolution.
1: Awesome. You this came up is- with it. So, yeah, and the famous one for people our age was, you know, like when Armageddon and Deep Impact came out the same year. Yep. And I think that same year we also saw A Bug's Life and Ants yep, come those out are the at two exactly kind of- the same time. But it is a much broader topic. So, for example, one of the ones that I get all the time with my blue screen series, the main character is Marisa. She is a Mexican cyberpunk Hacker with a bionic arm. And this book came out about six months before Blizzard Watch launched their Overwatch game, one of the characters in which was a Mexican woman who's a hacker with a bionic arm. Mm. Incredibly, incredibly similar in a lot of ways, while also being clearly neither one inspired the other.
0: We just came up with them at the same time. Yeah.
1: And I have that had this happens
0: all the time. Happened with me. I actually beat him to the punch by just a little bit, but I released a book called Warbreaker, right? Mm-hmm. And Brent Weeks released his Lightbringer series, which is a full epic fantasy, and both have color-based magic systems. And they came out within a few months of each other, to the point that when you hear Brent tells it, he tells it a little different. Because <laughs> I released Mistborn, and then he released his first kind of assassin fantasy assassin a series book and he's like this time mm-hmm. i'm gonna do something really weird no one's gonna beat me to the punch and then i beat him with a color-based magic independent we didn't even know each other at the time yes. the same person released right before him a story that on paper looks very similar it turns out the books are very different very very different and people may not even notice that but when he heard sanderson just released a color-based magic system while he was just finishing the revisions on his he's like ah <laughs> see barry liga Mm -hmm. who's
1: a ya author one of his big books was called i hunt killers and he in the same issue of publishers weekly where they announced his sale i hunt killers was about a teenage boy who is hunting serial killers Mm. a teenage sociopath hunting serial killers um in the same issue that they announced his sale they reviewed my i am not a serial killer and he looked at that and thought well They're going to take all the money back. They're going to cancel this contract. Mm -hmm. The two books are wildly different. Yeah. But that core concept of teenage sociopath hunting bad
0: guys is, you know, kind of evolved in parallel. You should see how many emails and social media posts and things I got about them saying, Brandon, the boys, they just released the boys. They're ripping off the Reckoners, to which I had to tell them, "Uh, go look at the original boys comic. It beat me by about a year or so mm-hmm. to being published from when I wrote the reckoners. And the reckoners didn't even get released till like three years after I wrote it. Yeah. Wasn't familiar with the boys, but the idea of hey, team of people who without powers who bring down superheroes. Yes. Superheroes are innately corrupt because their powers yeah. are so enormous. Yep. Yeah. Now that one's actually, I think, one of the best examples of how this happens from the inside. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I would All but guarantee that the creator of the boys' comic, his name escapes me right now, but I would all but guarantee that he and I spent a lot of time ingesting the same material Mm -hmm. during the 90s, shall we say, and early 2000s regarding, you know, superheroes, particularly things like Watchmen, particularly Mm -hmm. things like The Dark Knight Returns, this whole kind of superheroes turn gritty is an evolution on superheroes are paradigms. And that seed is very easy to plant once you've gone from superheroes are paradigms to Batman is a little unhinged and they have to send Superman to bring him down to the what would we do as regular human beings if Superman weren't there to stop, you know, this other individual with or, super or resources. Superman himself yeah. were evil instead of good. Right, right. Red Sun came it? out about this time which Superman you know, was raised in Russia during the Cold War mm-hmm. and things like that. Like if there are no supers to fight Superman and he turns evil, I mean, that is kind of Watchmen, but it's not. The story yeah. is not about bringing down Dr. Manhattan. It's about this concept. And so you could really trace this evolution to where the market was basically demanding <laughs> hey we need some stories about normal people fighting superheroes yeah and they just started popping up and in the middle of
1: the mcu rise to ascendancy mm-hmm. there was a clear market need for new spins on superheroes
0: right well and i talk about shared universes and things like that like part of my career getting made was the fact that The general audience was okay with shared universes all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. where before that was a detriment to your story. It was a (laughs) marketing tactic that Marvel used aggressively to milk its most dedicated fan base, Mm -hmm. Marvel and DC, to get them to buy comics they wouldn't normally have bought by making their emotional investment in one property be exploitable to get them to buy a comic from another property
1: yeah. right now you talk about this a lot mm-hmm. and i am not cut up on stormlight archive yes but at what point did the cosmere itself become blatant and on the sleeve of your work because i can look at most of right. your early books and yeah they all mention Hoyd, but i wouldn't consider
0: them a shared universe See, yet. they weren't but that's what drove the fan base This was a wake-up call, kind of, that this was what people wanted. So the story is, if you haven't read those early books, there is a character that's mentioned in them who's going between the worlds. There are little hints. The word Adonalsium and the fact that these kind of deities exist that came from who or what was Adonalsium and stuff Mm -hmm. is very, very, it's played very coy in my early books. And but still enough that a enough rabid fan base grabbed it. By Mistborn, by the first time that Hoyt appeared in it, the you know, this, his second appearance, mm-hmm. people were were latching onto it. And they asked me, and I said, Yeah, he's from the other book. It's from a different planet. And that one line drove the Sanderson fan base to explode in popularity. Mm. You know, it's very, very slight in the books. And this is why I kind of want to bring it up in this conversation, because I really think this is a thing that the market, the people were looking for, they wanted. The story-consuming public was really eager for this. And it turns out that both the MCU and I struck gold. The first MCU film was in 2007. Elantris was in 2005, so Mistborn came out in 2006, Mm -hmm. right? So the Brandon shared universe started in 2006, really, when the second book came out. And people just wanted this. They were excited for it. They were eager. And I still play it somewhat coy, much less so in the newer books. The newer books are getting into it. There's some pretty sizable crossovers in the fourth Stormlight book, for example. I still play it somewhat coy because I don't want that feeling that if you haven't read the other ones, you don't get a full emotional arc Mm -hmm. in your story, right? Like that, I just don't like the idea of. But I do like how the MCU is handling a lot of this, and I think that I could go further than I have been, and I am taking steps further because it is interesting. It is fun. It is experimental in a lot of ways, even though it's been done since, you know, the 70s or 60s where people have been crossing over stories between properties yeah. and things like that.
1: And I feel like we could talk about, you know, the cinematic universe idea, the shared universe at length, and maybe that's not where we want this discussion Probably to go. not. But… What's interesting to me is looking at, you know, the way in which they both evolved because we're putting references in there on purpose but not necessarily with the marketing plan of oh this is going to drive the fans nuts this mm-hmm. is how I'm going to make my millions. No. And the MCU also kind of stumbled into it backwards after including it as a joke. Jon Favreau put Samuel Jackson as Nick Fury into an end credit sequence of the first Iron Man literally as just pure fan service. Never imagining that there might be a vast you know cinematic universe growing out of this, and then of course, people saw it and loved it and wanted it,
0: yeah, yeah, and that's happening with me and I think that I wanted to do it, right? like I was there mm-hmm. for it, excited by the idea, even though I was a little scared of doing it. I'd been told it was not very marketable, but one of the things I want to get into here though is something I've been thinking about recently. This idea that the market kind of cries out for things silently. And (laughs) it makes me wonder, like, is some property inevitably going to get super popular at a certain point? I'm going to explain this poorly. If Star Wars had not been made, Mm -hmm. there were no Star Wars, would a different pulp-rooted science fiction story that takes itself very seriously— have risen up and become the pop culture phenomenon that Star Wars did. Was it inevitable that something was going to get that traction or not? And it's hard for me, actually, to decide, because on the yes, of course, argument is this, what I'm talking about, that like the market seems to want things. And Mm -hmm. what it wanted in the 70s was the pulp stories that the then-adults had grown up on to be taken seriously by cinema. And this is why The Godfather, Star Wars, Alien, Jaws, all of these came out in quick succession and were mega popular because they were treating the childhood of these people who were buying tickets with care and concern, and the people making the films themselves were children who had loved those things. But I just named some of the strongest films ever made at the same time. And there were lots of people who tried to copycat these with less skill. Mm -hmm. And you did not end up with these huge, wonderful franchises out of those. Yeah, like,
1: it's hard to say. Because it's possible that it is just the movie-going public crying out for something to be fans of. And I do think that there's some, some evidence for that. But on the other hand, you know, almost every film historian in the Western world will point to the seventies as a high watermark for filmmaking Mm -hmm. that that was when there was this really kind of alchemical mix of freedom and of possibility and funding and all these other things going on culturally and technologically and everything else. And they were able to produce some of these massively amazing films. I do think it's interesting that you point to star Wars and some of these others as being, you know, the, kids who grew up on pulp and now they were adults yeah because most people economists in particular look at you know uh-huh. jaws in 76 and then star wars in 77 as the rise of the adolescent market mm-hmm. and those were the movies when suddenly we flipped from adults driving art to teenagers driving art and i don't know if that's true Because I do think it's very easy for, you know, a stuffy adult to look at, you know, a schlocky horror thriller about a shark and a goofy science fiction thing and say, oh, that's kid stuff. This must be teenagers pulling all the strings now. But on the other hand,
0: I don't want to argue with people who have studied this more than I have. I think they are right, but I think that there is an element missing there. That was still an era where like your word of mouth and things had to happen with the adults taking people and going and yes teenagers as a demographic had started to rise a little bit earlier than that as soon as they mm-hmm. had cars teenagers became yeah. a demographic but i think what's going on there is that the pulpy schlocky stuff was popular with kids and teens in Steven Spielberg's youth because it was fun and exciting and now you had fun and exciting plus good special effects and interesting filmmaking and good cinematography, of course it's still going to be popular with kids and teens. It's the same (laughs) stuff, but taken seriously and made well. Yeah. If they loved it when it was made poorly because of the funding constraints and Mm -hmm. the the technology constraints, of course they're going to love it when it's made really well. Yeah. But let me tell you, teenagers were probably not driving The Godfather. They were probably not driving Alien as much, at least at the beginning. Alien so, maybe. Yeah, it's possible. Stuff like Jaws and Star Wars, I mean yes, definitely.
1: it's not our grandparents that were fans of that. It's our parents. Yep. You know, they were in their early twenties. They mm-hmm. were still practically
0: kids. I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's it's an interesting question to ask. Would mm-hmm. it have arisen if I hadn't done the Cosmere, who would have? there would probably be an epic fantasy property that's doing all of this that is at the top of the sales Somebody charts. Somebody out there just cursing your name. Yeah. Peter mm-hmm. Brett is like,
1: ah, Brandon <laughs> Sanderson stole my throne. That's a really interesting question to ask, and I can't not think about it now. Mm-hmm. Like, if Star Wars had never happened, yeah. if George Lucas had just stuck with American graffiti yep. and he was making car movies and stuff, I tend to suspect that something would have taken Star Wars' place as the cultural phenomenon, driven by the rise of youth culture, driven yep. by you know the popularization of pulp. But it wouldn't necessarily have been a science fiction. No, it might and not how have. How different would our world be? Here's your mm-hmm. writing prompt for the day for alternate history. How different would the modern world be if it had been the Godfather that had taken
0: that off? There's Four the name of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna have to write that out in the poll, and it's gonna take up like a block of text.
1: <laughs> I mean, kind of westerns already had their heyday, and yeah. so I don't know. Superheroes like,
0: could have happened. It right? could have
1: been superheroes. Like, when was the
0: Richard Donner Superman? That was like, yeah, that was late seventies be- or mm-hmm. early eighties, right? Adam, pull up Richard Donner Superman. Uh, it could have been that. It could have been like. Here is the thing: Star Wars warped the industry. Mm-hmm. enormously. Yeah. And what you saw coming afterward were a bunch of Star Wars clones where people just suddenly sunk a bunch of money into these properties and projects, Battlestar yeah. Galactica. And then there's like a billion Roger Corman films and just different things <laughs> all trying to be all these Star other Wars. Things, Buck Rogers. Those people all would have been making films that were not influenced by Star Wars and maybe had a lot less attention on them. Their budgets would not have been very big, but it makes me wonder: Would something else? Would we have had Roger Corman become instead George Lucas or something like that? It could have happened. That's just really interesting like to me. Like if Indiana Jones, yeah, pulp
1: adventure story, if yeah. that had become the Star Wars instead yeah. of science fiction, mm-hmm. and then we would have now generations of, you know, people trekking through jungles. Yeah, I don't know. I'm really interested to know. When was
0: uh, the Richard Donner Superman? Uh, Superman 2 came out in 1980. Superman 2, when it was Superman so That's one the one would that came 78? Up. Yeah, the first one it would have 78 been. 78 is what I was going to guess. Yeah, so 78 so, is the first
1: one. Yeah, yeah. Now, and you mentioned Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. And I don't want to brag. Yeah. But this week I got an email in my inbox from the Battlestar Galactica Central Command Fleet Division. I got my 10-year anniversary certificate as a card-carrying Battlestar Galactica Fan club guy.
0: Only 10 years, Dan. Only 10 years. Unless you go back to the, the <laughs> 70s and 80s TV show, then, then unless your card nonsense. is dated in the previous century. I don't know. I don't know if I, I know. can be I know. impressed.
1: No, jokes aside, the original Battlestar Galactica, I was a huge fan of as a kid and mm-hmm. I adored it. The modern, I say modern, it's like yeah. 20 years old yeah. now. The newer Battlestar Galactica is a wonderful and I won't call it flawless, but one of my very favorite TV shows of all time. It can be a masterpiece without being perfect. So you, it's a, yeah, like a, a although I will, I will fight people that it had a good ending. Mm. Most people hate the ending. I loved it. Okay, so here's a question. You mentioned Alien. Yes. And that was an early 80s thing. Yep. And I don't know if I can call it parallel evolution, but there was a time when we had a long string of horror science fiction crossovers. There was Event Horizon, there was Predator, there was all this stuff. What if that had become the Star Wars? So instead of science fiction adventure, it was science fiction horror. But I don't know if it could
0: because you want to be able to take your kids to this, whatever this Mm -hmm. thing is that's replacing Star Wars. I think it became part of the phenomenon because you could take your kids to it and you could buy them toys of it. Now, in the 80s was a weird place for toys. I had Rambo toys, <laughs> right? When I was probably too young to have like, it's mm-hmm. a cool monster. Here's a toy. And you're like, oh, that's a cool show. I guess I'll have that toy. Yeah. When, you know
1: You I- know, I grew up with Rambo as one of my eighties kid macho touchstones. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe ten years ago that I actually watched the movie and realized what it was about. Like, it's a really sad, tragic story about PTSD. Right. I did not know that as a kid, because that's not how they marketed it.
0: Well, it it did not become the cultural touchstone until part two. Yeah. Part one is a, it follows the Mad Max pattern. Part one is the kind of weird psychological indie film Mm -hmm. that at that point, everyone was looking for these auteur filmmakers making weird psychological indie films with some sort of action premise behind them. And then- Took them and threw a whole bunch of money at them, and so you go from First Blood, which is PTSD. Yeah. Rambo's not really the hero of that, even though he's the protagonist. Mm-hmm. To First Blood Part Two, Rambo's gonna go shoot some stuff and blow things up now. And, and not calling it Second Blood was such a yes. such a miss. The same thing happened with Mad Max, right? Mm -hmm. When you go from Mad Max the original to the next one, some things change in that series. Road Warrior. Yeah. Rambo never got its Fury Road, though. Yes, it did not. That's too bad. Which is kind of odd because Sly Stallone has been like, you know, there's that point where he was remaking everything. He did do another Rambo thing. He did do another Rambo, but it didn't. which I do think he actually called Last Blood. Yes, he did. To his credit. But it didn't take off like his reboot of Rocky the expendable did. expendable stuff and well, the Rocky stuff. Yeah, the Rocky stuff.
1: So what if Mad Max had been Star Wars?
0: Oh, yeah, that could totally if, have done it.
1: It absolutely could yeah. have. And again, I think you're right. It, it more likely would have been Road Warrior because that's the one that did the really interesting world building and it had all the kind of merchandisable toys and and things road warrior you're, you're getting mixed up road warrior is the first one no the that... first one is just mad max second one is road warrior oh you're right Third you're one right is Thunderdome. it is Road. yeah it is you're, you've got it right so but i absolutely think that post-apocalyptic
0: stories i mean it, it would have been a weird fit but that mm-hmm. could have taken off maybe people would have actually stopped making fun of and admitted that Waterworld's a good movie if that had been the uh uh-huh. you know, I mean, Kevin Costner is kind of mockable, which is I think part of the problem. We talked about Waterworld already. Yeah. You know, because he he did that and he did the Postman, which is the same you know, the sort postman of thing. The
1: Postman is the same thing except terrible. Except I, I boring. Don't, I, I don't yeah, it's really boring and very <laughs> uh melodramatic and full of itself in yes. the same way that Hook is, even though everyone likes Hook more than Dan does. I actually got a death threat texted to me from our mutual friend, Ben Olson. Oh, good. So, you know, it's yeah. okay. He yeah. sends me death threats all the time. Yeah. But yeah,
0: for, for bashing Hook. Huh? Well, you know, I knew, <laughs> I knew Ben had good taste, and this is just a reinforcement of it. Yeah, it could have been those post-apocalyptic things. I wonder if we would have gotten the YA dystopian wave at a different time. If dystopian post-apocalyptic can become the Star Wars. That could be very interesting. People kept trying though, like Logan's Run didn't work, right? Like it it didn't take off. I feel like start a phenomenon. The thing about Star Wars is Star Wars is a world you want to live in. Mm -hmm. And that's the big distinguishing factor between this and a lot of the things we're talking about. I do not want to go and live in the world of aliens. Yeah. Do not put me on that ship. (laughs) Mad Max. I, no, I would be you. the
1: first one to die.
0: Yeah. Do not put me in that world. No, thank you. Hey, do you want to become a magical space wizard with a lightsaber? Don't worry. You'll be able to do flips and, and dodge bullets. Your and best friend is like yeah. a giant dog. Yes, your yes, best friend's a giant dog. And, you know, you get trained by the wise old mentor. I mean, the, the hero's journey is a, a big part of that. But there's also the fact that people want to go live in the world of Star yeah. Wars.
1: Now, when you talk about the ability to take kids to it, I think that that might be one of the keys because the 80s and the late 70s also saw a massive renaissance of horror and slasher films. They did. Coming out of nowhere and achieving immense popularity, but only with a subset of the population.
0: And that subset of the population also thinks they're terrible. (laughs) There's some really good ones in there. But most of the time, if you're like, you're a slasher film aficionado, which ones are good? They'll be like, all right, Halloween. And then there's silence.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and
0: then they're like, "Scream." The
1: first Friday the Thirteenth was good. The first Nightmare on Elm Street was good. I'm not going to put yeah, them, on, right. but, but, them. Yeah, you're right. They're not. how yeah, nobody went and saw, you know, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four because mm-hmm. they knew it was going to be brilliant. Yeah. It was just because they knew it would be fun. And so, I think that in order to become the huge cultural phenomenon, you do need that kind of all ages access and I think you do
0: need the I want to go to there kind of I think people underestimate this. It's one of the things I've been talking about, the people working on the Mistborn film, is I even point out like the thing that Star Wars did that nobody else has really pulled off is, and Harry Potter did it too, so Mm -hmm. I won't say nobody else. If you go to a con and you see someone dressed up, there's a 50-50 chance that they are a character from the movie and a 50-50 chance that they are their own creation that just lives in that world. Mm-hmm. People put on Harry Potter robes and you're like, oh, are you Hermione? They're like, no, I'm just me. I'm, you know, me yeah. but Harry Potter world, the wizarding world. I'm me except I'm a Ravenclaw and yes. this is my owl. If you go and count the superhero costumes, that doesn't happen. People mm-hmm. Occasionally, right? Of course, there's going to be exceptions, but for yeah. the most part, you'll count a 100 superhero costumes, and you'll get no original content because they're becoming that superhero. They are not becoming a person that lives in this world mm-hmm. that is part of all of this. And yeah. this isn't a knock against the MCU. It's a difference in the styles of genre, but I'm kind of, you know pointing out to them. I'm like, one of the advantages of fantasy over superhero films is this idea that when you do a good job with the world building and things like that, people want to live there. And they yeah. will create, you know, like the 501st is just an excellent example mm-hmm. of this sort of thing. If you're not familiar with that, is that's the, the Stormtrooper Legion. That you can join by having your stormtrooper armor, and whenever you're like watching some news story, like look at these silly people who do fantasy things. Okay, we're gonna go pretend to be serious and not make fun of them for a minute when we invite them on our show, and then afterwards, are kind of making fun of them again. Yeah, those are the Five O First guys. The Five O First, which is totally unfair because the Five O First is also a massive like charity fundraising yes. and the amount of work they put into those. Like the Five O First is this really cool thing, but it ends up being the thing that people, you know. Like it also is like the example of the power of a fantasy film. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Star Wars being science fantasy is that those are the bad guys. But you know what? I can build my own armor, I can be part of this world. And I think it's awesome. And it's part of what makes me love fantasy. That is a really important distinction because it's
1: not just superhero cosplay, anime, and all these other things. You are being a character. Rather than joining the the fantasy world as your own character,
0: have you ever been cosplayed?
1: I did have Kira Walker from yeah. Partials. Somebody no, no, no. showed up. You, me, Dan Wells. Dan Wells. I won't say that I've ever been cosplayed, but I will say that our local con LTUE uh-huh. over the last few years there has been a marked and statistically improbable rise in the number of people wearing wide brimmed brown fedoras.
0: Nice. So I will claim credit for that. But no, people don't dress up as me. I've been dressed up as that I know of once, but it was by a friend. So it's kind of cheating. (laughs) But yeah. So
1: good friend of ours, Dong Song. they are a literary agent. Mm -hmm. And one thing that they said about fantasy, which I think is brilliant, and I can't stop thinking about it, is that for a really good popular magic system in a fantasy property, Will have an element of horoscope to it, which I think is part of this same thing of I want to be able to see myself in the world. You know, I want to be able to take the quiz and figure out which Hogwarts house I'm in yeah. or which branch of, you know, the Stormlight.
0: Who's this? Is I am. I can't remember any. You took of the that names. whole test with me <laughs> on did. a live stream. <laughs> and you're like, whatever, what, whatever, that that goofy stuff Brandon does. There's, I didn't say it was goofy. Yeah, you just acted like it was goofy. Just because we don't murder cats in my books. You know, I don't take seriously. literature
1: seriously unless yeah. there's dead cats in it. Mm-hmm. Boy, I just lost half our fans with that line, didn't I?
0: <laughs> oh, there's a good name for our podcast.
1: <laughs> I just lost half our fans. Starring Brandon Sanderson and Dan Wells. And 97 dead animals. I'm just making it worse now. <laughs> I uh can't even remember what I was going to say but I'm sure it wasn't brilliant but there you go